trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Have you come today to revel in wrong think, laddie? Well, you've come to the right place. And it's a, nece- it's a necessity right now. Seriously, if you want to keep your mind, you have got to be willing to think outside the boundaries of groupthink. And by the boundaries of groupthink, I'm talking about all the opinions that are allowable that polite people may discuss, you know, as they quietly nod in agreement on PBS or something like that. Now you got to be willing to, to take a, a much closer look and it really... Be willing to to maybe march to a slightly different tune. That's hard for a lot of people. We have been taught that, uh, you know, dissent, well, that's not a good thing, but we, we really need principled heretics who are willing to speak outside of those boundaries of approved opinion. Not so much just, you know, to, you know, to be radical or to, you know, make noise, but we need perspective. We need ideas to counter herd mentality. And frankly, the reason that I love to revel in wrong thinking and encourage other people to do so, even if they don't agree with me, is to uh, counter that, that groupthink, to counter the, the collective mindset that becomes a substitute for rational thinking and that actually can cause a lot of harm and, and suffering. I'm, I'm reminded of a, a quote from Charles Hugh Smith, great econ- econom- <laughs> economist, and, uh, and he writes some great articles, particularly about economic conditions. But he pointed this out a couple of years ago. He said, dissent is the immune system of society. Suppressing dissent doesn't just get rid of pesky political protesters or conspiracy theorists. It also gets rid of innovations and solutions society needs to adapt to changing conditions. So the idea is that we need voices that are out of lockstep with the majority. That's what keeps us from being sucked into that groupthink that then holds sway over everyone. I guess it comes down to this. When we have shared ideals and we voluntarily embrace those shared ideals, that's what provides the the glue, if you will, that holds together a healthy society. But it's the voluntary part that people struggle with because they have trouble tolerating different points of view. Isn't it ironic, too, that the folks who are most concerned with tolerance these days, you know, you should be more tolerant, these are actually the most intolerant people of all. So, you know, what a conundrum. We need principled voices of dissent. We need people who are willing to brave criticism and vilification to say what people fear to say for themselves. I know I've talked a lot about Woody Harrelson in the last few days, but that's a good example. He's actually taken a lot of heat lately, but he isn't even walking back his statements from last week's Saturday Night Live monologue. In fact, I just saw an article. In fact, I'll include this one in the show notes today. Woody Harrelson doubles down, slams COVID mandates. He comes right out and says the U.S. is not a free country. Wow. Now, this guy's an A-list actor. I mean, this is not just some nobody. I mean, I don't know if you saw the movie 2012. He played kind of a cool tinfoil hat uh, conspiracy theorist. The craziest of crazy. But he was right. I need to point that out. In the movie, he actually was right. He just was portrayed as as some weirdo who, you know, who knows what he's talking about. I'm not saying that everybody who's, you know, way out there is necessarily right. But I'm saying that 
if you only want to hear things that uh, that appeal to your sense of, oh, well, look at me, I'm in step with everybody else, and oh, I'm safe right here in the middle of the herd, you might be doing yourself a bigger disfavor than you think. And I say this from experience. I've run with the herd for a long time. I've I've been safe in the numbers. Oh, look at me. You know, nobody's, nobody's going to be able to spot me as the nail sticking up waiting to be hammered. I don't think we live in times where it's it's possible to thrive and to be a healthy human being or for that matter to have a healthy society without having a, a very strong commitment to the truth. In fact, your your commitment to the truth has to be stronger than your need for approval. That's how important this is. And so I'm not here to tell you, you know, here's all the stuff you should think. Here are your talking points, so I uh, just will email it to you in my show notes. I don't believe in, in giving people talking points because I really do want people to think for themselves. And yes, that means they may think, Brian, you are full of crap. That's the risk I take. I'm okay with that, though. Above all, I just want, I want to encourage you to think more deeply don't have the knee-jerk reaction just because something uh, looks, oh, that's opportune. Ha! You know, I can score points with this. Don't jump on the bandwagon just because lots of other people are. Take the time to really think it through for yourself. Study it out. Be willing to dig a little bit deeper and do your own research. I know they'll, oh, what, use Google? Yes, if that's part of it. If there's something you truly want to know, you will find a way to learn about it. You'll find the voices and the the people who have the necessary knowledge. You'll learn the questions that you need to be asking to give you a better, more informed view on the subject. Then you make up your own mind. Okay, is this a truth that I'm willing to embrace and to, uh, you know, acclimate into my own life and to, to assimilate? That's the word I'm looking for, to assimilate into my own life. And if the answer is yes, fantastic. And if it's like, nah, that just doesn't add up. That's fine too. But at least you've done the rigor of actually thinking about it rather than just, oh, sounds good. What? We'll march in this direction now. Okay. Man, we saw so much of this in the last three years. I know I probably sound a little bit fanatical when it comes to to doing this, but I'm encouraged when I see people speaking up. And when I see, uh, when I see Woody Harrelson who I'm guessing I probably wouldn't agree with him on a lot of different things, but I got to give the man props. He's willing to risk being thought of as some kind of a weirdo. He's willing to be punished or at least to, to, to be, you know, called names for the sake of speaking what he believes. So when he comes out and he says, look, you know what, when he, someone specifically asked him, well, what is it that makes you think the U.S. is not a free country? They asked him what was absurd about the COVID protocols. And his reply was, well, the fact that they're still going on. He says, I don't think anybody should have the right to demand that you're forced to do the testing, forced to wear the mask, forced to get vaccinated three years on. So, yeah, he's uh, he's he's taking some heat right now from the enforcers of the narrative, those who are there to make sure that, that gently or maybe not so gently steer us back on course when we start talking about things which we shouldn't be talking about. But I'll go back to my original point. We need to be questioning these things. And we can do it without being at each other's throats. That's the the amazing thing. When you hear people saying things like, we're all in this together. If they're saying it in such a way that that means shut up and don't say things that make me uncomfortable. That's the wrong approach. That's the collective mindset becoming a substitute for rational thinking. 
And when people cease to think rationally, bad things happen. I, I know this is going to rub some people the wrong way, but I'm going to say it anyway. I saw this phrase the other day, Weimar America. We are in the Weimar America stage. And if you don't believe me, I would encourage you, go back and look. What were the attitudes like in Weimar, Germany? 1920s, early 1930s. What were the societal attitudes? You had a very, very highly educated society. This was not a bunch of, you know, primitive people just trying to find their way out of the dark. They were extremely well educated, and yet they absolutely turned loose of their moral foundations. As in, they would turn churches into brothels and and and, and so forth. I mean, it would, they they trod the path that uh, that we are currently, you know, stepping towards at an increasing rate. Did they have drag queen story hour? Well, they certainly had the the equivalent thereof. My point is simply this. Rational thinking stopped and the collective mindset became the norm. And once it did, it led to great harm and incredible suffering. And I'm talking the kind of harm and suffering that the world had not seen up to that point. Okay, it's 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 not to say we're all becoming Nazis. No, I'm just saying when you turn loose of your ability to think clearly, rationally, to really seek out the truth and then hold to it when you find it, that's what protects you from being protects you from being led down paths of collectivism that uh, specialize in in apportioning misery as equally and as far as possible. We're on that path. The parallels are undeniable. You've heard me recommend Milton Meyer's book. They thought they were free, the Germans, 1933 to 1945. He interviewed people who lived through that period, actual Germans, who watched their society transform from something that was absolutely at the, at the pinnacle of the first world into something that uh, was, was an absolute nightmare. And he asked them, how did this happen? How did it come to this? And in most cases, there were people who recognized, whoa, we're getting way off track. But by the time they recognized that and by the time they realized this is not good, all that groupthink had made it so dangerous to speak out. You literally took your life in your hands to say something. Every incremental step took them closer and closer to the ultimate horrific fate that they suffered. We are following a similar trajectory. Maybe we should pay attention. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Okay, I feel like I started on a fairly heavy note, but I'm telling you, that thing was just burning. <laughs> it was burning inside me. I wanted, to, I wanted to say something about it. I feel better for having said it. So let me, uh, let me share something that I found very positive and very informative. One of the best justifications for freedom, one of the reasons it's so important is it enables us to pursue happiness on our own terms. And I've got a marvelous essay here from Barry Brownstein that I'll be including in today's show notes on what Thomas Jefferson meant by the pursuit of happiness. This was just recently published by Barry Brownstein, who says the idea of the pursuit of happiness is in our societal DNA. Yet this unalienable right, immortalized in the Declaration of Independence, 
has often puzzled people. What exactly did Jefferson mean? Now, most people think of happiness as feeling good, but that's not what Jefferson meant. Pleasure and happiness are not the same. Our happiness does not depend on everything going right in our life or getting what we want. In her Law Review article, The Origins of the Pursuit of Happiness, Carly Conklin observed the widespread societal misunderstanding about the nature of happiness. Jefferson didn't mean the, inali- the inalienable right to pursuit of happiness provides an unmitigated right to pursue that which would make one feel good. Conklin described Jefferson as a meticulous and deliberate writer and proponent of the rights and duties of man, who would not include a vague phrase in a quite particular declaration of man's natural and political rights. Now, Jefferson was influenced by William Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England. Conklin wrote of Blackstone's argument, the pursuit of happiness is the primary method by which men can know and then apply the law of nature as it pertains to humans. Blackstone himself wrote that individuals can discover what the law of nature directs in every circumstance of life by considering what method will tend the most effectually to our own substantial happiness. Now, you might have to read that a couple of times to really grasp what he's talking about here, but he's right. And people who violate the laws of nature, they do not reap happiness. I mean, I could go into some detail, but I'm not going to. I'll just kind of let that stand. The unhappiest people you would meet are the people who are trying to live contrary to the laws of nature. Back to the article. Conklin clarified the implications of Blackstone's argument. Happiness in this sense is synonymous with the Greek concept of euda... This is going to take me a running start here. Eudaimonia. Eudaimonia. It evokes a sense of well-being or a state of flourishing that is the result of living a fit or virtuous life. Now, Barry Brownstein says, Jefferson embraced this meaning of happiness in a letter to his eldest daughter, Martha, Jefferson advised living a virtuous life is the key to happiness. Anyway, Jefferson wrote, is the most dangerous poison of life. According to Jefferson, the antidote is developing daily those principles of virtue and goodness which will make you valuable to others and happy in yourselves. Now, Jefferson left no room for doubt about the means to happiness. Health, learning, and virtue will ensure your happiness. They will give you a quiet conscience, private esteem, and public honor. So pointing us back to Blackstone, Conklin puts it this way, rather than being fleeting or temporal, such happiness is real and substantial. It's real in that it is not fictitious, not imaginary, but true, genuine. It is substantial in that it pertains to the substance or essence of what it means to be fully human. Thus, for Blackstone to pursue happiness was to pursue a fit or rightly ordered life, one that was in harmony with the laws of nature as it pertains to man. End quote. So Barry Brownstein says the wisdom of Blackstone and Jefferson is consistent with the latest academic research on happiness. Once we are beyond the necessities of life and know those necessities don't include electric cars, hedonic or other changes in life circumstances do little to impact happiness. One researcher, Sonia Lubomirsky, explained happiness more than anything is a state of mind, a way of perceiving and approaching ourselves and the world in which we reside. Now, from here, he talks about Leonard Reed, who believed that the pursuit of happiness was a spiritual process. In his book, Elements of Libertarian Leadership, Reed wrote, we are truly happy only when we are in a perpetual state of hatching, our own consciousness opening to infinite consciousness. 
Now, by hatching, Reed referred to the ideas of Greek philosopher Heraclitus, who believed in Reed's words, we are creatures in transit. We can't drift along as we are, just being our jolly little selves. We must grow, and if we don't, we decay. The famed author of Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, stressed that happiness must be obtained indirectly by pursuing a meaningful life. In his book, Yes to Life, In Spite of Everything, Frankl explained that life is not about getting what we want. Pleasure in itself cannot give our existence meaning. Thus, the lack of pleasure cannot take away from meaning, take away meaning rather from life. Frankl maintained happiness should not, must not, and can never be a goal, but only an outcome, the outcome of the fulfillment of duty. Wow! Can you imagine anybody in a leadership position today, a politician or otherwise, saying something like that? Now, consistent with Blackstone and Jefferson, Frankel advised us to perform a Copernican revolution, a conceptual turn through 180 degrees, after which the question can no longer be, what can I expect from life, but can now only be, what does life expect of me? What task in life is waiting for me? In Anna Karenina, Leo Tolstoy's Vronsky experienced that anyway that Jefferson warns against. Having obtained Anna Karenina's love, Vronsky soon felt that the fulfillment of his desires gave him only one grain of the mountain of happiness he had expected. He was soon aware that there was springing up in his heart a desire for desires. Anyway, without conscious intention, he began to clutch at every passing caprice, taking it for a desire and an object. Barry Brownstein says Tolstoy illuminated rather the lesson that a life revolving around self-gratification doesn't work. Vronsky's fulfillment showed him the eternal error men make in imagining that their happiness depends on the realization of their desires. I'm just going to pause for a minute. Does that sound familiar? I need to be able to do whatever I want. I need to be me. I need to do this. I need to do that. How many people have painted themselves into a corner, an inescapable corner of consequences, by following that pathway? I know, it it happens. Barry says, why does it matter that the pursuit of happiness is so often misunderstood? Listen to his answer. There is no right to happiness. Others are not obligated to make you happy. Now, you're free to pursue happiness if you don't trample on the rights of others to pursue their happiness. The late minister and author Hugh Prather warned, happiness is unfocused, agitated, and above all, scared. Having no integrity, no calm inner direction, it takes its cue from whatever problem is perceived to be before it now. Barry Brownstein says, when we pursue happiness, we have a responsibility to remove our self-created barriers to happiness. Pointing the the finger at others while remaining unaware of our darker thought patterns, that's a barrier to happiness. Instead, Prather encouraged us to become more aware of our petty, malevolent, and embarrassing thoughts. Prather advises us to examine how we use time. Do we have a valuable purpose? If not, we rumble around, bounce haphazardly, and hopelessly off every change time brings. In doing so, proof of our insignificance and ineffectuality mounts. Discontentment grows. Feeling unhappy, someone may reason that someone or something else must be at fault. They, not I, are without virtue. Not understanding the true nature of happiness fosters irresponsibility and threatens liberty. He says a society with a population less willing to pursue happiness in the sense that Jefferson, Blackstone, and Frankel advised 
is a society in which populist authoritarians multiply to exploit the vacuum. Authoritarians and collectivists will point to a myriad of problems obstructing happiness and assure us that they have solutions. But here's the takeaway. Happiness is an inside job. And those who understand the nature of happiness cultivate timeless virtues that lead to a life of meaning and purpose. Today, more than ever, Barry Brownstein says the pursuit of happiness is essential to preserving liberty. There are so many nuggets of gold in this essay. It'll be in today's show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. This is March 2nd, 2023. You might want to take a look at that essay, maybe even read it a couple of times. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to my sponsors who make this program possible on a daily basis. MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com, and TMCPNation.com. That's the Modern Conservative Podcast. My friend John Harvey, who, by the way, is going to be joining me on the show tomorrow. John and I are going to talk a little bit about uh, the whole Scott Adams saga. And uh, John, I, I, I don't know what John's take is. I'm very curious to hear what his take is because John is uh, John's just very straightforward. So I, I'm curious if, if he thinks that Scott Adams stepped over the line or if Scott Adams was just speaking a truth that maybe a lot of people weren't ready to hear. I go back to my earlier comments about dissenting voices and people who are willing to say things that we fear to say ourselves. But nonetheless, you might want to tune in tomorrow. I, I, I will make it well worth your while for a little conversation with uh, my friend John Harvey from the Modern Conservative Podcast. So I wanted to uh, want to talk a little bit about this, this sense that we are being steadily marched to war. And I know that it's considered very unpatriotic to, to consider anything other than America is right in all things, always and forever. And we do not ever make mistakes. But you know what? I, I lost that naivete a long time ago. In fact, during the run-up to the second Gulf War, that's when my eyes really came open and I realized my government is part of the problem. And then I started doing a little deeper study of, you know, the history of U.S. interventionism abroad and realized Pat Buchanan was right. I believe it was back in 2000 when he was running for president. He talked about uh, the, the um, cost, the, the going price of global gamesmanship. And he was talking specifically about U.S. foreign policy. And remember, this is prior to 9-11. He asked, will it take some cataclysmic event on, on American soil to wake us up to the price of uh, global gamesmanship? And he likened it to the United States is, is acting more and more like a cop who goes around night-sticking belligerent drunks and yet is setting itself up to find itself in a bloody brawl that it cannot handle. We have a choice to be a peacemaker in the world or to be that cop who's out there flexing and trying to, you know, uh, hammer the troublemakers that it designates into, uh, into submission. Do you not see that happening right now? I know that uh, we're supposed to reflex, oh, well, Russia's evil and everything Russia did is bad and, you know, totally unprovoked. That's the programmed phrase we're supposed to speak when referring to Ukraine. Except it's not true. There was plenty of provocation. And that doesn't mean that what Russia has done by invading Ukraine is a good and humane thing. But 
the case can be made that with NATO encroaching right up to their borders, they have a very difficult decision to make, and their decision was we're not going to allow that to go unanswered. And yet, the U.S. keeps pushing, keeps sending weapons, keeps sending billions upon billions of dollars to the point now where uh, the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, is talking about, you better send us what we need or it's going to be your sons and daughters over here fighting. I can't say the words that I would like to say to him because this will be going out over uh, FCC-regulated radio stations, and I don't really want to you know, subject those stations to a fine. But basically, uh, if you're not familiar with, uh, with Andy Frizzella, listen to five minutes of Andy Frizzella, and you'll get the idea of what I would say to Z- uh, Zelensky's idea that, yeah, my sons and daughters need to be over there fighting in, in, that, uh, in that battle. My point is simply this. We are being marched toward war. And also the hostility towards China kicking up. Oh, what's this? Why, it sounds like uh, the U.S. government now is on board for the idea that COVID came as a result of a lab leak from Wuhan labs in China. We've got to see you about this. There's belligerence upon belligerence taking place. And the thing that scares me is, as I have seen before, this has a tendency to to appeal to people's patriotism, but in a very uh, a gutter type of patriotism, a, a corrupted sort of way. Got a great article here from Peter Jacobson from the Foundation for Economic Education. Why C.S. Lewis thought healthy patriotism curbs excessive militarism. He says, many know professor and theologian C.S. Lewis for his epic fantasy series, The Chronicles of Narnia. And Peter says, as I wrote in November, this series, on, the top of, on top of being a deep religious allegory, offers insightful political commentary as well. He says, although it may surprise some only familiar with Lewis for Narnia, Lewis was a prolific scholar who released a collection of fiction and nonfiction books which touched on, touched on primarily theology and occasionally politics. Now, though who know, those who know Lewis's life will be unsurprised. Lewis fought for Britain in World War I and applied though was rejected to train cadets in World War II. He lived through the rise of both fascism and communism, and as such, he has quite a bit to say about what politics looks like in a healthy society, despite not being overtly political. And this brings us to Lewis's discussion of patriotism. Although many may link love of country to support for militarism, Lewis observes that the exact opposite was true. In his book, The Four Loves, Lewis briefly examines what a healthy love of, of country looks like. When love becomes demonic. Now, the theme that runs through The Four Loves is Denis de Rochemont's maxim that love becomes a demon when it becomes a god. In other words, when we elevate something above its proper place, it will become destructive to everything around it. And Lewis begins by noting this can be true of patriotism. An excessive love for country can turn demonic. Lewis gives some straightforward examples of demonic patriotism, such as the willingness to spread propaganda, the indoctrination of young citizens, and the refusal to accept any mistakes made by the country. He summarizes the ugly form of patriotism with lines from a poem by Rudyard Kipling, which say, If England was what England seems, how quick we'd drop her, but she ain't. In contrast, healthy patriotism, which Lewis advocates for, can be summarized simply with the phrase, England, with all thy faults, I love thee still. Beautifully said. Next, he talks about the importance of patriotism in curbing militarism. Based on the above condemnations, it may seem that Lewis is anti-patriotism, but he's not. 
Lewis only believes patriotism becomes demonic when love of nation becomes a god. To the contrary, Lewis believes love of your home and the people near you is developmentally a prerequisite to loving others in general. Lewis puts it this way, those who do not love the fellow villagers and fellow townsmen whom they have seen are not likely to have got very far in loving man whom they have not. Peter Jacobson points out that uh, Lewis views love of home as an important step, and perhaps an irreplaceable one. He moves on to address those who take a cynical view of all patriotism with a simple fitting, simple response fitting of a professor compared to what? Without patriotism, Lewis says, the scale and damage created by militarism will explode. Quote, those who would reject patriotism entirely do not seem to have considered what will certainly step, has already begun to step, into its place. If people will spend neither sweat nor blood for their country, they must be made to feel that they are spending them for justice or civilization or humanity. This is a step down, not up. In the past, good men needed to be convinced that their country's cause was just, but it was still their country's cause, not the cause of justice as such. If our country's cause is the cause of God, wars must be wars of annihilation. A false transcendence is given to things which are very much of this world, end quote. Peter Jacobson says, Lewis argues that without the motivation of defending one's home, the appeal must be made to potential soldiers that they are defending goodness itself. This turns worldly disagreements between countries into transcendent fights between good and evil. Now, in contrast, wars fought in the name of the love of home. Quote, the hero's death was not confused with the martyrs, and delightfully, the same sentiment, which could, sue, could be so serious in a rearguard action, could also in peacetime take itself as lightly as all happy loves do. It can laugh at itself. Our older patriotic songs cannot be sung without a twinkle in the eye. Later ones sound more like hymns. Give me the British grenadiers with a toe-row-row-row any day rather than land of hope and glory. End quote. Now, Peter says, with this, I'm in full agreement with Lewis. Having Yankee Doodle Dandy as the national anthem would add some necessary lightheartedness into our patriotism. Winks and nudges while we sing about riding on ponies seems better to me than waxing romantic about alabaster buildings. So to Lewis, both a complete lack, both a lack of patriotism, complete lack of patriotism, and a demonic excess of patriotism lead to aggressive and destructive militarism. The former turns all disagreements into a struggle for everything good in the world. The latter seeks to subjugate all others to an infallible nation. Healthy patriotism, in contrast, is anti-imperialistic. Lewis says patriotism of the proper kind is not in the least aggressive. It asks only to be let alone. It becomes militant only to protect what it loves. In any mind which has a pennyworth of imagination, it produces good attitude toward foreigners. How can I love my home without coming to realize that other men, no less rightly, love theirs? The last thing we want is to make everywhere else just like our home. It would not be home if it were different. Unless it were different, rather. So Peter Jacobson says, America with all her faults, I love her still, and I'm happy she is different. And I hope you understand that the, the, the criticism I'm leveling against the government and its foreign policy is born not out of hatred or dissatisfaction, but out of a love for my country and a desire for her to be right and to be good in her conduct. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm covering a lot of different topics today, so if you're getting whiplash, my apologies. I can recommend a good chiropractor, (laughs) but uh, uh, there's just so much good stuff I I wanted to share. I want to next steer into a topic that uh, surprisingly makes some people very uncomfortable, and that topic is modesty. Got a great piece here from Alethea Hitz, who is writing for intellectualtakeout.org. It's titled, Objectifying Women, the Importance of Modesty. And she says, modesty isn't something society likes to talk about. Suggests that it might be proper, and you'll probably get an angry glance. And if you're in the right situation, maybe a snide comment about the patriarchy. If you don't like it, don't look, many people declare. And everyone's expected to applaud their astounding show of eloquence. She says, researchers and writers Lexi and Lindsay Kite, while admirably polite in presenting their thoughts around dress codes and, by extension, modesty, accurately reflect the mindset of contemporary society. Dress codes inadvertently sexualize young women as a collection of inappropriate body parts, positioning them as threats to be mitigated at any cost. She says another writer, Caitlin White, expresses a similar sentiment. Dress codes teach women from a young age that their bodies are to be hidden. By banning cleavage and thighs, dress codes teach girls that their bodies are objects. By causing young women to think about their clothes, the argument goes, we imply that those young women are merely bodies. So what does modesty do? Alethea Hitz says certainly some girls may become inordinately self-conscious by intentionally dressing modestly. It's always strange to do something different from what we're used to. And with the increasingly permissive attitudes around clothing and personal presentation, modesty for most people is definitely different. But, and this is key, is self-consciousness the primary concern? In the late 2000s, Susan Fisk conducted a study on the effect of immodest clothing on the male mind. In the study, male subjects viewed images of scantily clad men, scantily clad women, and fully clothed men and women. Reporting on the study, Christy Nicholson noted that, not surprisingly, the subjects were best able to remember the women in bikinis. Not only that, the subject's memory correlated with activation in part of the brain that is a premotor, having intentions to act on something, so it was as if they immediately thought about how they might act on these bodies. In other words, the immodesty present in the women, turned on parts of the men's brain that corresponded with objects. Modesty doesn't objectify women. Immodesty does. That's a beautiful explanation. Next, she talks about modesty and self-esteem. Contrary to contemporary thinking, modesty, when understood correctly, promotes substantive self-esteem. In her 2000 book, A Return to Modesty, Recovering the Lost Virtue, Wendy Shallot notes that one of modesty's paradoxes, is that it is usually a reflection of self-worth, of having such a high opinion of yourself that you don't need to boast or put your body on display for all to see. For confident women, communal admiration is unneeded. Their bodies don't need to be marketed because they already understand, number one, that their bodies have worth, whether or not they're turning heads, and two, that their bodies as beautiful can be saved for someone who truly loves them. From here she talks about how to catch an honorable man. But please, some women may insist, we want attention. Whether or not they acknowledge it aloud, many women have a desire to turn heads. They know that immodesty does garner attention. And for some women, seductiveness, or seduction rather, may feel like the last wayward boat off the lonely island of singleness. Still, women must ask themselves, is the attention gained by immodesty the attention we want? 
To be frank, very few women truly desire one-night relationships. Instead, they want something deeper, something that transcends the moral carelessness of society and encourages men to love us as, as they ought. However wreathed in smiles it might be, Pastor Douglas Wilson writes, immodesty attracts the kind of man you should not want to attract. The kind of men who work hard to avoid being pigs will begin to work hard at avoiding you. Sincerely virtuous men will be not will not be caught by the body alone to catch a man of dignity. Women must act as ladies of dignity. Holy cow, that is so on target. So, Alethea Hitt says, modesty is glory. She says, my goal here is not to lay down strict rules for modesty. Countless rules exist and are debated elsewhere. But this piece is just offering a reminder that ultimately, modesty is not a restriction. It's a glory. It's a confident statement that the female form is both beautiful and precious. I, I think there is so much good in this article. And again, I, I would recommend, I actually, I want to share this one with my 14-year-old daughter. Not that she has problems with, you know, wanting to, you know, show off her body, you know, to, to gain self-esteem. But I can see that it's something that is very common right now. And, and it's, it's very, uh, it's very in fashion with, with her peer group and with the, the kids who she goes to school with. I just want her to consider that maybe there is an option. I have had this talk with, with, with my other daughters, and it usually ended up sounding something like, look, it's natural to want attention, but there are some kinds of attention that you don't want. And if you're putting yourself out there on display, you are definitely going to attract attention, but some of it may be of the wrong kind. I used to have a coworker who would often wear very... Um, shall we say flattering clothes, flattering to her figure and whatnot. And uh, I don't remember if she had complained about it or someone was just like, wow, you know, she's really showing off a lot. And um, it, it made some people uncomfortable. And then one of my other coworkers, he was, he was very outspoken. He just said, well, if you don't want it to be looked at, don't put it in the store window. And I went, wow, he's got a point there. But I really love how Alethea Hitz puts this. If you want to attract the right kind of man, ladies, You've got to, you've got to, you've got to act as someone of dignity. You've got to value yourself rather than cheapen yourself. And I know that's a very hard sell right there. He's an old man yelling at clouds. Listen to Hyde. He's out there yelling at the clouds again. <laughs> okay. I'm just saying she makes an awful lot of sense. One final note, and this one, I, I wish I actually had more time to spend on this, but it's an article by Ryan McMakin from the Mises Institute Secession is inevitable. It's about when, not if. Now, just mentioning the word secession gets people, you know, pretty freaked out. And, and when you have what appear to be irreconcilable differences between people, it's, uh, it's probably time to think about this. Frankly, I've, I've, I think Ryan actually had written on this topic some time ago. I'll have to check and see if I can find it. But it seems like he wrote an article once upon a time about how secession begins with the individual. And I'm going to tell you straight up, I long ago began my secession from much of American culture and society. And by that I mean I have, in, in whatever ways I have found possible, begun the process of separating myself from society. There are things that I just don't want to be associated with, and I, I will not be associated with. And it's not because I think I'm better than all that. It's because I recognize what matters to me. I recognize what moves me closer toward becoming the kind of person that I want to become. 
And frankly, I see the majority of society, the mainstream of society, is going in a different direction. I don't want to be dragged down with uh, with uh, wherever they're going. I, I'm not going over that cliff. And if that sounds arrogant, I don't know what to tell you, but, uh, you know, I my belief is one day I'm going to stand before God as an individual, not as a member of society. So I'm going to do what my conscience tells me is in my best interest. Now, back to the idea, though, of, of political secession. Something he points out in this article is that, uh, well... You know, the, the first reaction of, of some people is uh, they become obsessed with, well, we'll have to make war against you if you, try to get, if you try to separate from us. Eric Swalwell, the congressman from California, for instance, suggested, well, the government would use nukes against internal separatists. Others talk about, uh, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, I guess Marjorie Taylor Greene and the rest of northern Georgia didn't learn their lesson about secession the first time. Picture of General Sherman. Sherman intensifying. And he says, isn't that interesting? That, uh, you know, if, if, if that sort of thing could only be carried out today if these modern Americans are willing to die or kill or have their children die or kill in the name of preserving the union. And he asks, how many are actually willing to do this? Hopefully not many. And the people who say, well, I would be willing to, how could they be described as anything other than fanatics? He says, you know, the, the crazy thing is there have been plenty of instances in which peaceful secession has taken place. They always focus on the American Civil War, as if it's the same situation now as it was 160 years ago. It's not. But look at the peaceful secession movements. Iceland from Denmark, Norway from Sweden, Singapore from Malaysia, Malta from the British Empire, the Baltic states from the Soviet Union, that's just to name a few. But the American anti-secessionist movement is just obsessed with making war against their own neighbors. How dare you think that you could get away from me? So Ryan McMacken says, look, the answer lies not in doubling down on political unity maintained through endless violence or threats of violence. He says the answer lies in peaceful separation through expanded self-determination, regional autonomy, confederation, and consensus. The centralizers, he says, are on the wrong side, and ultimately they will be on the losing side as well. Why? because moral authority is on the side of those who are seeking self-determination. You might want to write that one down. I suspect we're going to be revisiting this topic sometime in the near future. This is The Brian Hyde Show.